Hi, and welcome to Responsa Radio, where you ask and we answer questions of Jewish law in modern times. I'm Rabbi Avi Killip, Executive Vice President at Hadar, here with Rabbi Ethan Tucker, Rosh Hashiva at Hadar, a center for higher Jewish learning based in New York City. We've covered a lot of ground on this podcast over the years, and some questions feel a little bit more lighthearted. You know, what can I eat? How do we play? How do we use our leisure? And some of the questions have more weight to them. And I just want to acknowledge the gravity of the question that we're going to talk about today. And I'm approaching it a little bit nervous and also glad that we can answer and really start to respond to questions of this depth, of this importance, even in a venue like this. And I sort of want to start just by acknowledging the limits of what you can address in a podcast. And it's a little presumptuous to even take this question up in a podcast because it's so specific to each case um, and there's so much at stake here. And yet I think it's worth it for us to just raise the issue, raise awareness about the issue and give people a little bit of, of starting direction to think about. So sort of thank you in advance and apologies in advance if we don't get this exactly right. I also want to just say a word about language, which is that I'm going to read the language as the questioner submitted it and just want to acknowledge that the term for the topic we're going to talk about today is not universally accepted. Um, So I'll start with the term that's in this question, and then we can talk about other other alternative language that has been used. Um, Maybe we will even learn some ancient language or ancient paradigms to think about this. So it's a little bit of a a trigger warning, I suppose, and or uh, stick with us and we'll see where this takes us. So here's our question. I'm an oncologist and I have a couple of professional questions I'd appreciate guidance on. We live in a society where autonomy is given extreme value but patients ask me for a lot of guidance when getting towards the end of their lives. To what extent do I have an obligation to try to encourage patients to continue life-prolonging treatment? How much does their quality of life matter? I live in a state where physician-assisted suicide is legal. I have no interest in being a prescriber for this, but am I allowed to mention it anyway? I'm hesitant to even seem like I'm referring patients to it or suggesting it to patients. Sometimes patients ask me about it vaguely, without any real idea of exactly what they're asking or if what they're asking about is legal. What should my role be? Lastly, do any of the above answers change if the patient is Jewish? So there's a lot here. Yeah, it's a question with a lot of gravity, as you said. And I really appreciate your framing and want to double down on a few pieces of it before we jump into the text. The first thing is just to reiterate um, the limits of what you can do on a podcast. And what we can't do here uh, is really issue guidelines for exactly how a physician or any individual should behave. I think what we can do at best is give proof texts, a sense of the issues, a sense of what's at stake, and as you said, sort of questions of vocabulary. And as is often the case, we can sometimes point to areas that are black and white, even if there's also a lot of gray. And then in terms of the language of physician-assisted suicide, obviously the language itself is charged 
um, it's charged in a couple of ways. First, whenever we talk about suicide, uh, we're engaging in one of the most painful things that people and families ever have to encounter. We've come to such a greater understanding uh, of how suicide can be a tragic consequence of mental illness. And whatever we think about these various issues and how people should proceed, we always have to remember to have the utmost compassion for any person and family that it touches. And I also want to emphasize that we're focusing here on a very specific kind of end-of-life question, which is the question of either assisted suicide or aid in dying through medical intervention under the supervision of a doctor. And so many of the issues that come up around suicide are not actually directly uh, touched upon by the cases we'll talk about, and yet the lexicon and the context is similar enough, it feels really important to acknowledge all of that before we begin. The other thing I might like to say right from the start is just deep respect and gratitude to doctors and in particular oncologists who play this role, who who are faced with decisions like this, you know, not once in a lifetime, but actually on a regular basis and who as this questioner writes, really are turned to for advice that may seem so far beyond what they actually are are trained in or are capable of answering even. Um, so I want to sort of reach reach back to this questioner and just say like a kolakavod and a thank you for the work that you're doing in the world. So with that, let's try to jump in. You know, if we were doing a broader survey of sources around taking one's own life, we would begin with Shaul, the king of Israel, Shimshon, the judge with a tragic end. We talk about really horrifying and difficult sources from the Crusades and other cases. Um, and there's all kinds of material here that we should also say listeners may find a bit upsetting as we go through uh, the material and important to keep that in mind. But we're not really focused here. The questioner is not asking about people who are otherwise well, healthy, strong, deciding to end their lives uh, and whether that's ever justified. The short answer to that question is no. <laughs> the rabbinic tradition places a supreme value on life. You override Shabbat to save it or prolong it. And there's really only a notion of giving up one's life in the case of violation of mitzvot that destabilize all of Jewish society and commitment, whether because of the severity of the mitzvah or a social context of persecution. So we're really going to focus on cases where a person is suffering. And the question is, can we hasten the person's death to prevent them from enduring that pain? So when the questioner writes, how much does quality of life matter? I'm not totally sure exactly what what the answer that I just heard is. It, in some senses, maybe it's it matters tremendously. If your quality of life is fine, then you're not even in this category. And or should we be listening or try to be attuned to how how deep the suffering is? Yeah. So let's hear some of the precedents that I think may give us some ways of thinking about this. And I think there are three main texts that we should look at and that can help guide the discussion. Interestingly, one of them is more explicitly halachic and normative, but two of the earlier ones are agadic. They're kind of narrative portraits of sages and the people around them, but they become paradigmatic in certain ways of thinking about this. So the first is a story from the Talmud in Avodah Zarah about Rabbi Hanina ben Tradion 
who was a great sage, and he defied Roman orders not to teach Torah in public during the time of the Hadrianic persecutions. And they catch him doing this. Looks like he was almost looking to be caught. Um, and this is one of the really tough images in this episode. Uh, they take him, they bind him up in a Torah scroll, they put sponges that are wet up against his skin to delay uh, the fire that they then set to him and to the Torah scroll uh, from burning through him quickly. And he's quite obviously going to and does suffer from this. And his students, uh, who have to watch him go through this, say, open your mouth and let the fire go in. The idea of, you have some control, they seem to imagine, of quickening the process. And he says, better that God remove my soul from my body than I wound myself. He is unwilling to play any role in hastening his own death, even though he's quite clearly in pain. And then at that point, the Roman executioner, who is in charge of the proceedings, who has come to admire Rabbi Hanina ben Tradion, says, uh, if I stoke the flames and take the sponges out, will you promise me that I have a share in the world to come? So there's a little bit of an odd quid pro quo here, the uh -huh. idea that Rabbi Hanina ben Tradion somehow has you know, the access code to the gates of heaven uh, and the executioner through a mix of altruism and a mix of self-interest is offering to hasten his death. And Rabbi Hanina ben Tradion says, yes, I will promise you that if you do it. And indeed, then the executioner ups the flames, takes out the sponges, and he dies very quickly. Now, that's an odd story because it's actually unclear what's the bottom line. Can you do something to hasten death or not? Rabbi Hanina ben Tradion seems to say, I can't do anything to hasten my own death. But if someone else were to come along and to offer that they do something such that that would be the result, I can agree. There's so much in that story, I don't even know where to begin. Well, first of all, I just feel like I want to acknowledge that sometimes the stories we're given are, here's a thing that happened and what we can learn from it. Whereas this story feels so deliberately constructed in order to teach us, um, just because it seems so unlikely that we could hear this conversation between the executioner um, and the rabbi in that moment, you know, while there's, while there's fire burning. But so there's something really, I think, sort of telling even just from the fact that we are teaching this through a story in in I think that it's um, you almost can't discuss these things in the abstract you have to have a case study mm -hmm. that even this text is is trying to create a case study for us to to unpack but even at that I don't know the fact that he doesn't actually want to be dying truly meaning in that moment he's in so much suffering that he doesn't want to be dying although truthfully now that I think about it I'm sure you could say the same of the patients struggling from cancer is like they fundamentally want to be alive in the world, but it's their suffering in this moment that has led them to, to that desired outcome. Right. And I think even in the story, there's a question of whether the time lapse matters. In other words, when his students asked him, 
he said, no, I'm not going to move forward, is by the time the executioner comes in, is he suffering more? And so is it not just a different case, but a shifted response? All of that is a little bit shrouded in mystery. Minimally, there is some door opened to the idea that you can allow someone to uh, take something away, potentially, that is impeding you from dying. And maybe there's a distinction between you doing something yourself and someone else doing it, but also maybe the act of opening one's mouth is a more sort of active pursuit of death as opposed to the removal of the sponges. Mm -hmm. But again, the executioner is also raising the flames. So there is not a clear active-passive divide that I think you can map onto this story. But I think what is also incredibly striking about this story is that it's not just a question is what the executioner doing wrong. It's actually a question of is what he doing right? Is this the thing that's going to get him into the world to come, right? Um, which is a totally different premise where this doctor who's writing to us is saying, I know I should avoid it or and I want to avoid it, but how much should I avoid it? This story might even push us in the other direction to say – it's a mitzvah, you know, it's actually a, a positive to help people when they are suffering to reach that state of peace. Yeah, good. So I think we'll come back to that because I think that is very relevant. And uh, we'll have to think about both the raising of the flames and the removal of the sponges as two acts that come together here, but might actually have slightly different valences in that regard. But we'll return to that. Let's go to case two. Case two is from the Talmud in Ketubot, and it's the story of Rabbi, Rabbi Udanasi, uh, on the day that he died. And there is a sense that he's at the end, and essentially the entire rabbinic community is desperate to keep him alive, and they declare a fast, and they're praying all day, and they even make a statement. Anyone who would go today and say, oh, Rabbi has died, or it seems they may even mean, if you say, Rabbi's about to die, Yidaker Bacherev will be stabbed with a sword, right? A kind of dramatic language of, you know, almost like idiomatically, you might say, right? We'll kill you if you say that, yeah, right? It's like so much, so much for love of life. <laughs> right, exactly. Um, they're zealously guarding Rabbi's life and trying to keep him alive. He has an anonymous maidservant, I think we would say today, home care aide, yeah. who is with him. And um, she goes up to the roof, and her initial response is, I see the upper forces, that is to say the angels and God, are trying to get Rabbi in their domain, but the lower forces, the people on earth, are trying to keep him here. And she initially prays and says, uh, I hope the, the Tachtonim get the better of the Elyonim. I hope the earthly forces beat out the heavenly forces, meaning... Also, she's praying for him to live, mm -hmm. like the students and rabbinic fellows below. And then, it's such a poignant description here, she then sees how he goes to the bathroom many times and has to take off his tefillin and put them back on every time, and how he was in pain. Mm -hmm. And it's an amazing mix there of there's a sense of, as often as the case, as people are uh, at terminal 
positions in their healthcare and life, it's actually like going to the bathroom can be like the most painful and difficult and undignified thing. And that mixed with the religious element of a man who just wore its fill in all day and wanted to do that and did that his whole life to be in a position where he's constantly he taking really them off, it. putting them on. He's not himself, right? Like either in body or in soul is almost the picture. And she sees this and she says, I hope the Elionim get the better of the Tachtonim. She reverses her prayer and says, essentially, I hope God will take him. Mm-hmm. And the prayers down below won't keep him here. But the sages below would not stop praying for him. And there's a sense of those prayers actually did something and kept him alive. She takes a pitcher of water and throws it down from the roof near where they're praying. It startles them. They stop praying because they say, what was that? And at that moment, Rabbi dies. So she actually releases him from that sort of purgatory and her prayer ends up being fulfilled. Here too, is she the hero of the story? Is she complicated? Is she an antagonist? Um, If we assume she is heroic and paradigmatic in some way, this then provides a basis for allowing people to die rather than being artificially prolonged in life when they are in visible pain. I love the story. It's one of my favorite stories. I think actually there's so much beauty in it. It feels like such a contrast to the first story, which has so much horror in it. Mm -hmm. You know, if the first one is the absolute worst possible way to go, this one is actually maybe the most beautiful and ideal, right? You should, you should be going at a time when, when the voices on both sides are calling to you, you know, it's like, that's, that's the best. And, and I think one of the reasons I love this story so much is it feels so accurate in my life of people I have known personally through pastoral care instances that there are so many instances actually where people die when their loved ones say, you have my permission to go. You know, that that's all it takes. It sounds maybe like a religious dreamland to say, well, it was their prayers that were keeping him alive. But but actually, I, th- I think I've, I even personally have seen it. I know so many accounts of it that really, truly it works that way, that when you sit with someone and say, OK, it's OK for you to go, you can you, you know, I'm going to I'm going to let go of my side of the tug of war um, that that actually does you know, not infrequently allow people to to die. Again, people who are dying, but um, but I, I just see so much truth in that story. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so all those things. And another thing just to sharpen here, as opposed to the first story, which had some, some ambiguity around it in terms of the executioner raising the flames, here it's very clear that the way Rabbi's death is hastened is through ceasing to pray, right? Ceasing to intervene. No one is actively doing something to, you know, put him out of his pain or his misery. There's a letting him go. It's a different kind of narrative thrust. That's interesting. I I might say it differently. She climbed up on the roof and threw the pitcher off. I feel actually like it was a very active move on her part. Yeah, active-passive may not be the right language. I guess what it is is she doesn't come and 
throw the pitcher on him and knock him out is what I mean, right? In other words, she's removing something that is an impediment, which will be important for the third source we'll look at to the extent that's an important distinction, as opposed to the executioner actually stoking the flames that are killing Rabbi Hanina. So in our modern language, we might say removing life support machines is not the same thing as you know, giving somebody an injection of something or a pill. Right. So that's where the third source really comes in. And this is the halachic source um, that then gets quoted in later codes from Sefer Hasidim from the Middle Ages. And for anyone who's looked into this topic, we're not breaking any new ground here, really just elucidating what the main central sources are on this topic. And this is certainly one of them. And it's a really interesting source. And I want to just read it through because the details of how it's discussing this become so important. Sefer Hasidim says, you are not allowed to take actions that will prevent someone from dying quickly. Meaning, it seems like he's saying, you actually have an obligation. It goes back to what you were saying before. You actually may have an obligation to allow someone mm -hmm. to die quickly if they are on that path. Like what? Kigon, for example. Someone is on their deathbed, and there is someone nearby chopping wood. And the sound of the woodchopper is so kind of distracting and enervating that the soul cannot leave the body. Says Sefer Hasidim, Misirim hachotev misham. You remove the woodchopper. Not actually seemingly like you're allowed to tell the woodchopper to stop. You are supposed to, right? In other words, the headline here again is, you are forbidden from prolonging a life that is simply trying to leave its body. Um, you actually are supposed to intervene to remove the woodchopper. Similarly, you may not put salt on the person's tongue to prevent them from dying. I don't know the full medical or treatment background here, but you can imagine something that's kind of- stimulating. Yeah, it's aggravating, stimulating. It's going to keep them alive. You may not do that. Okay, two examples, the woodchopper and the salt. Different in the sense, the woodchopper, you are removing that aggravating factor. And the salt, you may not do something that will just kind of keep them alive in that way. However- if the person on their deathbed says, I'm not going to be able to die until you move me to another place, you may not relocate them. Okay, so this is where we get the balance between what I think at the end of the day are like the animating values here, which is you really hear in the first part a sense of if someone is a gosses, they are actually going to die. You are not allowed to get into all kinds of life-prolonging things that are just going to mean a longer window of suffering. Mm -hmm. But on the other hand, even for someone in their last moments of life, there is still a rubric of murder. There is still a rubric of potentially worrying about killing them. And their life still matters. And therefore, you can't do certain things, but this is what we have to define, that are the equivalent of moving them from one place to another so that they will die. 
Is the premise that they might die while you're moving them? You don't want them to die in the process, like at your hand? That seems like it may be what's going on, but the source doesn't completely explicate right beyond that. So it could be that during the transition it will happen, or it could be more broadly just the act of moving them somewhere else, which is actively, oh, this will help you die, <laughs> is different from stopping something that is preventing them from dying. Yeah, the thing that's in the first story and this story is the actual voice of the dying person saying that they want to die. Um, interestingly, the middle story didn't have, nobody ever says to Rebbe, tell me what you want. <laughs> Which side do you want to be on? Right. Um, but in this one, it is striking, actually, to hear the voice of the person saying, take me to the next room. Yeah. Now, here's the problem. So those three sources put together, I think we've, we, we see some ambiguities there. We also, I think, do see or certainly can construct a notion of you can't actively end someone's life, even at the end. But there is a broader range of maybe are you allowed someone else to do it for you, like in the case of the executioner? Or are there things that are really not about actively ending life? They're about removing impediments. But those on some level, even for that ambiguity, I think the Sefer Hasidim source, that third source about the woodchopper and the salt and the moving, that would actually give you a pretty clear playbook. That wouldn't be so far to follow in that world. Modern medicine has made this so much more difficult because there are now a range of new circumstances that never existed. Ventilators, food that can be administered intravenously, and then it becomes much less clear and contested what is like the wood chopper and what is like moving the person to another place. Right. And I think even modern medicine has even given us um, the ability to make this decision. The decision tree comes so much earlier, right? When you're told, do you want to continue to pursue treatment or not? Um, and that's an earlier question that, you know, the time of these texts, they didn't have that kind of question. Um, you know, are we continuing the chemo or are we just going to let it go? When you know the result of the second is going to end in a particular way. Great. So that's really helpful, I think, for then laying out um, what I think are sort of the two follow-up ways then to thinking about this. And here's where we really go to like offering models and frameworks for thinking about this much more than, okay, here's the answer, right? Here's how you proceed. So there's one approach in light of what you're asking of like, how do I think about that stuff in terms of uh, treatment and assessing people's needs. So there's the mitzvah of lo ta'amod al damre echa, right? You can't stand idly by while someone is dying, while someone is in need. Um, and on some level, that's the most direct thing um, that a physician is engaged in when asking this question, right? The Hippocratic Oath, not doing harm to patients and, and helping them. And there is one approach that would say, Look, lo ta'amod al damreyecha applies even to a person at the end of life with potentially very little prognosis of, of what can be. Um, and just as you would say, right, a, a starving person needs food, you see someone who needs to be fed. 
uh, and who needs to be cared for, you you must step step up and do that. And so you have to do. There's a, a kind of hardcore approach to that that says. You've got to renew all the IV drips of food. Like, of course you have to give oxygen. Of course you have to do anything where you see a person needs something, you provide it. And that's the approach of many modern post-scheme, right? Which is that even if we endorse some version of the Sefer Hasidim, which is you're allowed to remove impediments to death, you can't deny food and water. You can't deny oxygen. Like you can't withhold any of those things. And Rav Eliezer Malamed, a contemporary posseik, uh, tries to sum it up, I think pretty usefully, as the difference between kind of routine versus unusual interventions. He's like, the Sefer Hasidim is only about allowing people not to take unusual steps to kind of keep someone alive. It's like, there shouldn't be a wood chopper there. There's no reason that should be there. Or the salt on the tongue. You're like doing a weird thing that's not a part of normal life only in order to keep the person alive. That's where you have license to let the person go. I wonder if you could read that now as like, it's okay to stay at home. You don't have to go to the hospital. You know, that sometimes you say, normally when when her blood pressure gets that high, we would check her into the hospital or, you know, but we're going to stay home. That's right. I think that's what he's sort of getting for. And and one example of this also is um, Rav Moshe Feinstein, for instance, says that a patient with metastatic cancer can decide, is allowed to forego chemo, mm -hmm. and a doctor can approve that course of action. There's a notion that chemotherapy is an extraordinary medical intervention, that the patient basically has the right to decide whether they want to pursue. But these voices are very clear, food, water, oxygen, you can never withhold that. Mm -hmm. And the implication, which I want to come back to later, is, and you even potentially have to offer those like against the patient's will, mm -hmm. right? It's not up to them. Um, and it's just a basic way of caring for a human being to feed them and make sure that they have air. So that's, I think, one way of thinking about it. Another approach would be to really lean into the Sefer Hasidim's distinction between removing things that are keeping the person alive so that they can die, as opposed to actively hastening their end, and maybe saying that food and water are included in those as well, right? Um, like a person who's suffering could decide not to eat. Right. And lo ta'amod al- And often do. And often do. And lo ta'amod al damre echa may really be about a person asking for help, right? Not about someone right. who's not asking for your help. Maybe you're not right obligated to feed someone against their will. And I will say, it makes some degree of sense to me, right? With the caveat that person has to be of sane mind, you have to be confident that they really know what's happening and what they're intending. But it does feel like there is something different about providing someone with actual food as opposed to an intravenous drip, right? If you think about it, before the possibility of feeding someone through an IV, you can really force feed someone right. to the point of keeping them alive. So the notion that we suddenly now have an obligation to do this because of the technology feels odd to me, even as it still feels very clear to me that doing something active to kill the person doing something active to hasten their death, like 
replacing the food in the IV with a lethal substance right. or giving them a pill, that feels beyond what anything in this halachic discourse can or should uh, really endorse, even as we have to acknowledge there are standards that are shifting in some states, like this physician reports, who no longer see assisted suicide, aid in dying, to be a violation of the Hippocratic Oath. But I think the halachic sources are overall pretty clear that that's a line we don't want to cross. Although, even in states where medical aid in dying is legal, it's not, um, it's not anything goes, right? There is nobody anywhere who says, like, you could just suffocate the person. Like, you can take the air away from them. Um, or, right. you know, you can just deny them water and starve them. I, I think that there's something significant there, actually, which is that um, your description of food, water, and air as, like, these fundamental life-giving sources that people must have access to, it may be that actually those are not, um, those may not be at odds, right? It's mm -hmm. like even the people who are taking these pills um, to end their life, to end their suffering are are not denying themselves necessarily those three things also. Um, and I agree with you. I think they, they sound different when you put them all, you know, an oxygen tank versus be in a room with fresh air or an IV drip versus there's a cup of water next to her bed. And if she's right. thirsty... It's there for her, right. or there's a nice chip on yeah. her lips, you know, Yeah, um, are different. Yeah, and this is the really challenging thing about doing halakha uh, from sources across time and space and the new technologies that create all kinds of new circumstances. You're looking for principles. You're looking for analogs. You're looking for ways that you can translate that across those boundaries. Um, but really, the technologies in certain ways create new categories, right? New ways of thinking about what it is to feed someone uh, such that it becomes hard to, to play that out. I'll say, I think, to the extent we can arrive at some summary here, um, I do think it's near impossible and should be uh, to simply authorize a direct action to hasten death in the framework of halacha. That is to say, just as a general kind of principle and direction, that's just not something that uh, that the Jewish tradition does or, or signs onto. And I think it's worth pointing out how very quickly um, allowances for this in various states and various contexts. That is to say, the language is generally, patient wants this. Is the physician allowed to grant them the ability to do this? Right. They create, you know, they have the agency. Allowances can become requirements very quickly, quicker than we notice. In other words, once it actually feels like, well, that's a perfectly moral way for someone to exit life, what happens when then there are strained resources? Or what happens when there becomes kind of pressure to drive to one uh, kind of outcome on this. That doesn't mean, I'm not suggesting that's happening now in places that are engaging in this, but I think part of the halachic resistance to hastening death should also be understood as nervousness about getting into that business in the first place. And the other thing I think is really important, which is at a, a point of tension that the questioner hints at, there is a tension between an approach 
that really emphasizes an individual's autonomous control over their body, which I would say is a certain branch of Western thought that has influenced some of these developments in, in some of these states and in medical practice. And where I think the Torah and the halachic approach is much more squarely located, which is the notion that the life and the body are a gift from God, and that there is actually some responsibility to the broader category of life. So we've seen already very clearly, like not only do we not want people to suffer, there's there's no value in people suffering. And there is sometimes even, it seems like, right, a mitzvah to make sure people are not suffering. And yet, whenever I think we're adjudicating the question of any given person's life, we're also asking the question of the value of life writ large. How will my behavior here potentially set up society to relate to all lives going forward? That's sometimes a tension between like this individual in this moment and their need and what's the broader value system we're trying to build our society on. Of course, we have to acknowledge that this broader values question can sound lofty and abstract, but in the real world case of an actual human being who is suffering, it is anything but abstract. We're not saying life is the ultimate value and people must always suffer for its sake. There's a very real human cost here, and it's not a definitive halachic ruling in all cases. Still, I think this framing around the value of life can be very useful. I find that so, so helpful, I think, and useful in pulling it out of the language of personal autonomy, um, which, you know, this doctor writes, like, the, the patients are talking about it as autonomy, but then they're asking me what to do, and I'm supposed to tell them. Um, And I think the framework that you're giving us takes it out of either of their hands. And it also, in some ways, I think it adds value and light meaning to the person's life, even at that last stage, even within their suffering to say, actually, there's something, there is something they are a part of that is immortal, and that is life. Life does go on, even when their life doesn't go on. And we and we can think about that. Um, and also just, I, I'm sure for some people bringing in God as another entity that gets a vote here may be painful. And for others, it might be incredibly useful and helpful to say, I don't have to make this choice because I can give it over to a larger being that's going to hold this fate so that I don't have to have the burden of making this decision. Yeah, in some ways it makes it weightier and for the physician to think about, well, I'm not just treating the patient in front of me, I'm sort of setting up kind of standards and principles for what life is like. And you know, the questioner also asked, I want to acknowledge, does it make a difference if the patient is Jewish? I want to just give the simple answer of no. I think we're dealing here with basic issues of human dignity and ontological worth the notion that you are dealing with a human being created in the image of God, whether they are Jewish or not Jewish. The question that comes before the physician and the person who is potentially in this impossibly difficult situation um, is a question beyond just one individual's life, but really about humanity writ large and how we safeguard the sanctity of life while also really honoring the importance of helping people to avoid pain and suffering. I want to close by saying 
how grateful I am that we have sources that we can turn to for questions like this. Um, because as much as I'm torn, you know, there's a part of me saying this is this is not podcast material. I, there is also, you know, but really when and how are we supposed to talk about these things? And where do we turn when we when we need advice on this? Um, and maybe it's important to be in a podcast, um, not even for those who are currently struggling with this question, but for those who may in the future um, and will have some memory that they have a tradition, that they have texts, that they have a an ancient history that they can pull on to to grapple with some of these impossible questions of life. And I just want to close by offering comfort and strength to any listener who has encountered this question, who encounters it regularly, maybe from their profession, um, or especially anyone who's currently uh, grappling with this question either for a loved one or for themselves um, and to say there's there's resources out there um, if this is something that you're struggling with to reach out to to doctors to reach out to suicide prevention hotlines if you're someone who thinks that that's relevant to you um, and to and to seek help and there there will be so many people in this community in the Jewish community beyond the Jewish community who are looking to support you through this process. Have a halachic question you'd like answered on the show? Email us at halacha at hadar.org. That's H-A-L-A-K-H-A-H at hadar.org. Responsa Radio is a project of the Hadar Institute. Thanks to Jeremy Tabak for producing this podcast and to David Chabinski for recording and editing this episode. 